Welcome to Seismic Airwaves, a podcast about disasters centered on earthquakes based in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Sabina Roan. Hi, I'm Brian Nguyen. I'm a Fulbright student researcher based in Da Nang, Vietnam for the year in 2020. Da Nang, Vietnam is located in central Vietnam. It's the fourth most populous, about a million people living in, in the city. And I'm here on a research fellowship to study campus sustainability and cross collaborate with researchers here at the University of Science and Education in Denon. This episode explores how the coronavirus pandemic has had different effects in different places by hearing people's stories. Brian Nguyen is our guest host for the episode. Brian and I completed our master's degrees together in urban and regional planning in Portland, Oregon, and we also both spent formative years in Southern California. Brian has a really unique pandemic experience. He was a Fulbright researcher, which is a prestigious program for American scholars and professionals to be sent abroad to lecture or conduct research. Brian was in Da Nang, Vietnam, starting January 2020. When the U.S. government started acting on the situation of the pandemic, Brian refused evacuation back to the U.S. offered by the U.S. Embassy, and he stayed in Da Nang. He was actually the only Fulbright researcher that he knows of in all of Southeast Asia to stay. At the end of the episode, you'll hear his reflections on that decision. The original interviews for this episode are in Vietnamese and can be accessed all the places you normally listen to podcasts, including on our website, which is seismicairwaves.com. For the English version, which you're listening to right now, Brian shares takeaways from his conversations with Da Nang locals and some of his own observations about the situation. To start us off, I asked Brian to give a general overview of the situation in Vietnam. Clear themes that emerged from the interviews and from what I've gathered reading multiple pieces on how Vietnam has successfully battled the pandemic. Centraled around four themes usually. It was the transparency, the fast reaction, to the pandemic because Vietnam shares a border with China, who was uh, one of the epicenters of the epidemic, the pandemic, and aggressive contract tracing. And the fourth theme was just the solidarity with the community that made it successful. General overview in Vietnam was Vietnam has known about this pandemic since around late January. They have around 350 confirmed SOAD cases to date uh, with something around a 95% recovery rate in terms of, I think around 330 or so have been treated and released from the hospital. And Vietnam has gone 60 days without a community transmission as of today which is June 24th. Vietnam went, had to go into social distancing for two weeks and lockdown, similar measures to the US, but it was only for two to three weeks from the beginning of April to the, around the, the end of April. And then uh, it's been reopened 
uh, everything is kind of weird and all the borders are, uh, not all the borders, uh, all the restaurants, hotels and everything. And the way of life has restarted uh, since around April 25th. So it's been around two months now. But however, the two things to consider are the borders are still closed to tourists since March 25th. Only special requests are made for people to come into the border, uh, to come into Vietnam. And anybody who actually comes into Vietnam still to this day, even students or foreign or um, Vietnamese citizens that return to Vietnam still need to go into quarant uh, mandatory quarantine camps uh, or facilities for 14 days before they can actually go about in the country. And that's still in effect today. And I know even you yourself as a non Vietnamese citizen, you've been not allowed to access some parts of Vietnam still yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, some isolated parts of Vietnam still do not allow access to foreigners based on their hesitation and fear of the pandemic getting to these smaller populations and kind of infecting their whole village and it could impact their way of life. Zero deaths total is so incredible that no one has lost their life in Vietnam. Yeah, it's been validated by like, the zero deaths have been acknowledged by the World Health Organization as well as US websites such as political in the success of Vietnam battling the virus uh, for, yeah, for a country that has a population of 96 million people and only 300 some odd cases and zero deaths. It's kind of mind boggling and unprecedented. And there is actually one person that was severely ill, a British pilot and Vietnam put all efforts into saving this person's life going from about a month ago needing a lung transplant and now being able to survive is kind of astonishing and a miracle but they were really adamant or not adamant but more so held in high regard of having that label of having zero deaths and really prided themselves on that and so they put all efforts into saving this man's life. And it's been a topic of conversation, the, the zero deaths, but based on the transparency of the government at the beginning stages of the pandemic and how open they were, it's created a sense of trust within the people that they do believe this is zero deaths. And for a communist government, they've had to kind slightly adapted their principles in responding to this virus in terms of having more democratic principles uh, and response, such as being transparent, the transparency in communicating this virus to the public. I could go into detail about that. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's fascinating. Um, let's go to those trends that you have noticed of the characteristics of the response. And it, can you talk about the influence of the one-party communist 
government as part of that? Yeah, the transparency was like the prime minister, who's the leader in charge of Vietnam, basically. His name is Nguyen Swan Phuc. From the early stage of the pandemic, he emphasized the, the goal is the existence and the preservation of life first and foremost over everything else, no matter what, even over the economy. So that has been the message throughout the response to the, global, the pandemic. And, and then the, the transparency of publishing names of people and their personal information, like people were comfortable with that, like the government publishing like patient number, so-and-so is from this hometown and, and is currently located and being treated at this so-and-so facility or hospital. And it was to gain confidence for the people and, and that the privacy went out the door over the common good and necessity of the people knowing this information. People also were harshly criticized by other local Vietnamese for not following certain orders, such as the mask wearing in public uh, through social media. So the government also allowed unrestricted information over social media. Um, they weren't censoring anything compared to other governments that might censor, such as China, that we know about that took down posts on WeChat or like other um, social media platforms. The allowance of like, free flowing of information really helped in this matter. And did that mark a departure from the past ways? I don't know if you were planning to talk about H1N1. Having that experience in recent years might have influenced the response to coronavirus. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say, I didn't gather much information from H1N1, it was more SARS related uh, from 2003. And that was one of the other themes was the fast reaction because of the lessons learned from SARS going back in terms of the life counts more than the economy. Vietnam was like the first country that implemented mass quarantines. Like in January, when they discovered in late January, they quarantined an entire village of 10,000 people for two weeks. Once they found, I think, three or four people that were infected in the village. So they set up these quarantine camps, right? Correct. Can you talk about those a little? Because that's extremely different from what we're seeing in the U.S. Uh, yeah, the quarantine camps. Uh, so these facilities are usually where soldier, soldiers are staying at, but uh, they converted these facilities, whether it be these places where soldiers stayed at or other facilities that have not been used, like, like old hospitals or whatnot and just set it up on the fly. And it was for all, once the pandemic reached a global crisis, many people, uh, many local Vietnamese citizens were trying to get home back to Vietnam. And so Vietnam set up the quarantine camps. I'm not so sure when they started, I've, I can't recall, but it was around in March, uh, it was effective in March, for, definitely. And they would, anybody who flew into the country, 
um, no matter who they were, a tourist or a citizen, would have to go to these facilities for two weeks, get tested. They would have to test negative over twice over a 24 hour period um, at their end of the two week quarantine uh, to be released. That's where like you saw some parts of solidarity and community spirit as well in the, the quarantine facilities with soldiers sleeping on the ground to give up beds for the people that were in quarantine and cleaning and providing meals for them for the quarantine people, like the soldiers were cleaning the facilities and preparing the meals. And so that's the extent I know the quarantine facilities. So the, the themes you identified were that solidarity, the transparency and reaction of government, and what are the other two? Uh, aggressive contract tracing. Mm. Aggressive contact tracing. Um, but as I mentioned before, like the details published of where they went and who they were in contact with and just the, the government wanted to know who they had been in contact with. They would go find, search for these people or put out notices and whether it be locating all of them. And like, it wasn't like just um, primary contacts, it was like secondary and tertiary contacts as well. Like people who might've contacted these people. Um, I know they had an outbreak uh, in March at the main hospital in Hanoi. I think they reached contact tracing to 10 to 15,000 people. It was through the other theme that was resonated was like the clear communication through press conferences every day, using, using social media, using text messages. Vietnam also has these loudspeakers in public spaces. Uh, and there's like loudspeakers on the beach here in Da Nang, but I know there's loudspeakers in like parks in other cities. So they would be broadcasting COVID updates and messages of people washing their hands, making sure to stay six feet apart, wear your masks, um, and just be very vigilant. And there was also in Da Nang, a truck, like a pretty sizable truck that had a loudspeaker attached to it that would drive around in neighborhoods and like broadcast messages to stay inside when it was during lockdown. I remember these trucks during lockdown the most. It was when they, to stay inside and, and they would broadcast these messages over the loudspeaker to all the residents and drive up and down these neighborhoods and broadcast COVID, like stay at home orders, wear your masks and uh, wash your hands and stay, go, only go out for necessary services. Yeah. So who did you speak with for these interviews about coronavirus? Uh, I spoke with two Dadang local residents. They lived here most of their lives, if not all their lives. Uh, one's name is Huang Min Tain, who's a graduate student at the University of Science Education, focusing on environmental studies and water pollution. And the other person I spoke to was uh, Nguyen Bo Suanha, who is an artist 
and a small business owner. Cool. And what were the takeaways you have from talking with them? I would say like takeaways were like, the differences in how Vietnam resp- responded to the pandemic versus the U.S. And what uh, uh, Swan mentioned that she couldn't believe like the the fighting or like the protests happening in the U.S. that she read about versus how it was the the preservation of life was not important and there's people still fighting with each other. So that she thought was interesting. They acknowledged the the success of Vietnam in fighting the pandemic. Some points um, that I know that Tim mentioned, the graduate student uh, that I spoke with, on how it impacted his life. Um, and it was more so working from home for his professors for two weeks during the lockdown. But otherwise, like it didn't affect him that much work-wise during the pandemic, except wearing masks more often. As far as talking with Swan, the Swan Highlight business owner, she actually does a lot of her sales for business online already so it was minimal impact for her her sales actually stayed the same in her online she just had to close her store her shop down but through marketing efforts she was able to keep her business like afloat during during the pandemic both of them though noted that they weren't in the main like a main sector of Danang. Uh, so Danang is a beach city and it's it's a very high, big, uh, the, the tourism industry is huge here from foreigners. A lot of Chinese people come to, to vacation here as well as Koreans, as well as um, domestic tourism is huge here. So the tourism industry was particularly hit hard here, they both noted, and through hotels, resorts, other tourism related industries were severely impacted and both of them noted that that it was really hard and a lot of young people work in the tourism industry here because it's an easy job it's stable income and it's a comfortable life and so it really impacted the 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 uh, a lot of the youth here uh, they also like noted the the social community efforts in response to the pandemic that I mentioned before, but they identified specific examples. We talked about the rice ATM that was instituted throughout Vietnam. It started, I think, I believe in Hanoi. And, and then there was rice ATMs in, uh, in Saigon and in Hue and in Da Nang, there was a couple. And they were funded by biz- local businessmen and donors as well as the government. And the way it works is it's how it like an ATM in America works. You just arrive and stand uh, six feet apart. You wait in line and you get to just, uh, you come to the, the ATM and dispenses uh, two kilograms of rice for your family for the day. You can come for no cost. Day. No cost. Yeah, no cost. And it's a daily thing that happened, I think, for a month in the month of April. And, uh, just like the um, helping out the community was a really huge thing 
that they identified and compassion for each other and the unity and the solidarity in the community. And food was like the most crucial thing like in the community um, and helping out others, whether it be serving meals, donating money to contribute to food access. They both identified food access as a way to help the community. It sounds from what you're saying like life is pretty back to normal on the surface and I'm curious what the lasting impacts you see are and I guess especially um, I imagine that the tourism industry in Da Nang is still operating at a much lower level if at all. Yeah I would say the lasting impacts are going to be especially in particular in Da Nang are the, the tourism impacts. Um, and it's now people have to wait and see, uh, wait and see how the pandemic pans out and when the borders reopen, whether it be people that work in the airline industry, people working um, tour guides, uh, people working in hotels and resorts. It's a wait and see approach as much as the success, and we commend the success of containing the virus, it also has its economic impact, severe economic impacts, like places just like in America are closed permanently and won't reopen. And as I mentioned earlier, like the young people work in these, a lot of young people work in these industries. And now what do they do? Like the question is, do they continue to wait or do they further upon their education or how do they sustain themselves for the future? Um, it's a, a very common question you ask these days throughout the world, not just in Vietnam. Um, any other things you're coming across that you want to mention? Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of things I wanted to add on. A couple that Tin mentioned that he noticed. They closed the borders early to China around early February. Vietnam acknowledges that they're or a developing country and they can't handle the virus if it became, became an outbreak. They wouldn't have the facilities to respond to that. They don't have the necessary ventilators um, in response. So they took just extreme measures at the beginning to prevent that from their hosp hospitals from overcrowding and had the foresight to see that. Another point is during hardships, in Vietnam, residents come together as a community and they don't just think about the individual or their individual needs. It's more the community response effort. And they come be, and it's a lot of us, it's a lot of assisting others in any way they can, and their neighbors uh, or who, whoever, it be, whoever it may be. I just felt a strong sense of community in the effort um, to this pandemic. And the, the last thing that leads me, that also leads me to like my one key thing to, to, for others to take away from this is the wearing of masks uh, is crucial and as well as uh, washing your hands properly and frequently. Mask wearing is such a common thing here prior to the pandemic already because of the poor air quality in Vietnam. Wearing a mask wasn't a challenge to a lot of people. It was more towards the foreigners that it was an adjustment. Um, and 
it was, it was very common thing and normal for years already. And wearing a mask also goes back to showing community support. You don't want others to get sick and others don't want to get you sick as well. That's what the mindset was in wearing the mask. Yeah, so I think wearing masks is the most crucial takeaway from like, these interviews that I, uh, I conducted as well as myself firsthand seeing the pandemic evolving in Vietnam. Are people not wearing masks now? <laughs> um, I, uh, the foreigners, because the, I live in a very foreign neighborhood, like a lot of expats and uh, foreigners live in my neighborhood. I don't see it as often these days. These past, this, especially this past month or so, people have been a little more lax um, and not wearing masks, but I still see it a lot in like the locals. Um, I still wear masks every, every time I go out because I take public transit to get to university. Uh, most of the people, I would say 80%, 80 to 90% of the people on these, on these buses wear masks. Um, I've also taken the train recently and everyone was wearing a mask on the, on the train itself. It depends, but I would say it's more between the locals, it's a 80% wear masks, 20% don't. And then foreigners, it's more like 50-50. Cause it's not, it's, uh, I think Vietnam has relaxed, relaxed their restrictions um, on mask wearing. It's not, uh, it's not a punishable fine anymore as it was in April, in April people who were not wearing masks uh, were subject to a $20 fine, which is um, a pretty substantial amount based on Vietnam standards. So my last question, are you glad you stayed in Vietnam? Uh, um, absolutely, yes. I mean, yeah, it's, it's worked in my favor. I just made the the most logical decisions to my for myself at that stressful point in late March. I just thought that through living in Vietnam for those previous two months and seeing their response and how vigilant they were, I made the decision for myself that I thought it was better off to stay. And I also was thinking of people that would come home to my parents who were old, older age and my, my grandma was close by and it would be really sad if something were to happen to them because of me. So I valued just having, uh, having valued, like being personally, uh, being responsible about my decision and, and thinking about all parties involved in my, coming home if I was going to go home. And ultimately I decided to stay and yeah, I like to use some key, some phrases a lot. Like when people ask me, am I happy I stayed? Absolutely. Uh, I zigged when everyone zagged. I am surviving and thriving in Vietnam at this moment. It's very, Refreshing to hear from my friends and family back in the States that they acknowledge and validated my decision to stay and 
they thought that they think that I made the correct decision and staying in hindsight. Um, yeah. And we'll see, we'll see if I return in December. That's the plan, but maybe not. <laughs> the day after Brian and I talked, he called back and left a message with some additional thoughts. Hey, Seb. Uh, I had a couple extra comments that looking through my notebook um, about what we discussed last night. Um, one was uh, Swan mentioned uh, that is often not talked about is that the males had to stay at home during lockdown and um, and usually women are head of households in Vietnam and men go off to work and so uh, she mentioned about the mental health changes aspect of having husbands stay at home uh, during this time and uh, the challenges with c- coming with that and oftentimes the uh, perhaps higher cases of domestic, uh, domestic abuse that are not reported uh, with having husbands staying at home during the lockdown and now maybe perhaps even longer with unemployment still an issue here in in Vietnam. Uh, the last note was um, the world-class response to the pandemic um, for Vietnam was due to this quote that I found was uh, every case and every life mattered and they even had a hashtag called Vietnam leaves no one behind that was pretty prominent in social media. So yeah, those are just my additional couple thoughts. Okay. That was Brian Nguyen, Fulbright scholar from the US who has been in Vietnam starting January 2020. We at Seismic Airwaves are so happy to have you join us on these auditory explorations making meaning of disasters. We will have more content specifically related to earthquakes coming up. The past few months, it's just felt weird to focus on another type of disaster when we're all experiencing the pandemic and there's so much to understand and connections to draw. If you aren't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Seismic Airwaves. Check out the website for more material to engage with after each episode at seismicairwaves.com. And always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop us a line at seismicairwaves at gmail.com. Seismic Airwaves is based in Portland, Oregon, on traditional and ancestral homelands of the Multnomah, Cliflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Walala Bands of the Chinook, the Tualatin Kalapoya, and many other indigenous nations of the Columbia River. In acknowledging these communities, we honor their sacrifices forced upon them, their legacy, their lives, and their descendants. Our team is Adrian Brown, Ariel Kane, Chad Tucker, Joseph Myers, Sarah Mayer. I'm your host, Sabine Aron, and that's it for this episode of Seismic Airwaves. Until next time, take care.